We'll turn to John 17. Last week we wrapped up our series in 1 Corinthians and we're going to take about four weeks now and look at John 17. So go ahead and turn there now. We'll look at just the first five verses and in a few moments we'll read it, but you can turn there now. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you and you'll find John 17 on page 1081 in those Bibles, 1081. You know, there are some moments in life where you realize that you're, you're looking in on something special, uh, a special moment, a significant moment. Maybe you go to the hospital to visit first-time parents holding their newborn baby. And just the preciousness of this scene of mother and father and child together for the first time with the baby outside the womb anyways. And it's a special moment. Or a, a new bride and groom after the, the busyness of the, the wedding and the early stages of the reception, and you see during the reception they're, they're, they're pulled aside together and they're talking and there's a closeness there. Maybe it's the graveside service of a beloved senior saint who walked with Christ for decades, investing in so many others, and has now passed away on into glory, and you're gathered with others to lay them into the ground. Maybe it's family and friends greeting a soldier coming home from an overseas deployment. You don't even know this soldier, but you're getting off the plane yourself, and you look over and you see a small crowd embracing someone you know they haven't seen perhaps in more than a year. There's something unique and intimate in these moments as we, as we look in on them. You feel privileged just to see it. We actually see, I think, such a scene in John 17. In John 17, Jesus is on the very eve of his death. He's moments away from being betrayed, arrested, unjustly tried, beaten, and finally killed. He's in these final moments of freedom before all of this takes place. And after spending the evening teaching his disciples uh, what we can see in John 12, but then especially 13, 14, 15, 16, he's investing in them. He's teaching them. Now he pulls aside to pray. It's an intimate time with his father. And in the midst of this drama that is unfolding all around him and is about to just hit the, the ultimate peak, he pulls aside and he prays. It's the longest recorded prayer of Christ in the New Testament. We often see him praying, pulling aside to pray. Many of his prayers are recorded. This is by far the longest, though. What would he pray for? In his final public prayer before his death, what would he pray for? What would be on his mind? What would be on his heart? Does it surprise you to learn that he prayed for you? He prayed for you. He prayed for his disciples, and they're likely there listening in, and he prays for them. But there's a line in here, in chapter 17, verse 20, after praying and more praying after this, where he says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is, his immediate disciples right there, but for those also who believe in me through their word. If you have believed in Christ, even though now we're 2,000 years separated from this moment, it's been through their word in the sense that it's, it's what's recorded in Scripture that was in some way handed down to you. You're in this category if you believed in Christ. He was praying for you. 
What would he pray for, though? What would he pray for for you? What is the most significant thing that he knew that you would need? Would he pray for safe, comfortable lives? Would he look down through the halls of history and pray that your particular political candidate would always win? Would he pray that when you're on the eve of promotion and it's between you and another co-worker that you would get it? Is that what he would pray for? Would he pray for wealth and possessions and nice houses? Would he pray for a beautiful family and a successful career and that you would never get sick? It's not necessarily wrong things for us to pray for in different ways and different contexts. But that's not what he prayed for here. He prays really for, for four things. And we'll unfold over four weeks. The first one here, as we'll see, he actually prays for the Father to be glorified through this whole thing. So even before actually he gets to this prayer for us, the broader context is the, the glory of God displayed in your redemption. But then he goes on and he prays for his followers to be, to be kept, to be protected, not necessarily protected from physical harm, but to be kept, protected in him, close to him, while they're in the world. He prays for his followers to be, to be set apart, but to be set apart so that they can be sent into the world. And he prays for us to be united. United, again, for the purpose of being sent, of being a witness to the world. So we'll unfold these prayers in the weeks to come. But I want to urge you to listen close, not just to my words, but to the words of the text. If Jesus prayed for you, shouldn't you want to know what specifically he prayed for? If he says, God, if you can only do four things for these followers, do this. Let's read this now. Verses 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I want to set some context. In the very first part of verse 1, it does this. It says, Jesus spoke these things. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come. He spoke these things, referring back to chapters, in particular, 13 through 16. And if you have a red-letter Bible, the type of Bible that puts the words of Christ in red, and you just glance back over those chapters, what you'll notice is they're almost completely in red. A little bit of narrative, especially in chapter 13, but mostly the words of Christ. In chapter 13, teaching his disciples about the importance of humble service and love for one another as he, as he washed their feet and he said, you should do likewise. 
chapters 14 and 16, as he talks about the coming helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete, who will come and be with his people. Chapter 15, about the importance of abiding in him and and bearing fruit. He, He was preparing them for his departure by giving him this instruction. And now, after speaking those things, and right before the betrayal that comes up in chapter 18, he, he prays. And he appears, prays apparently right in front of them. The, 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 if you read through these chapters, it seems like they're there with him. And so they're listening in on this prayer. And he says, Father, the hour has come. What does that mean? The, the hour has come. Well, several times throughout John, uh, John's gospel, he, he says some variation, either John in narrating it or Jesus himself, that the hour has not yet come, the time has not yet come. Just to give you some examples here, several places. In John chapter 2, when his mom wanted him to do something at this wedding when the wine had run out, and he ends up doing it, but not quite according to perhaps how she had anticipated. And by, while she's pressuring him perhaps to step into something ahead of time. He says, my hour has not yet come. Chapter 7, his brothers wanted him to go to a particular event, and he refused on their timeline anyways, and he says, my time is not yet here. And then later on in the same chapter, his hour had not yet come, John says about this. In chapter 8, in a tense moment, in the treasury with the Pharisees, is they're riled up in anger against him, and there's great opposition. And in fact, it says they had intended to lay hands on him and grab him and seize him, and yet John's gospel says they did not seize him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, even though they wanted to, even though their anger was riled up, they were unable to because it was not yet time. But now, in chapter 17, it says the hour has come. The hour has come. It's not the first time he said that, though. Remember, chapters 12 and on really deal with the same night, the same time. And we see it earlier in this same section. In chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered, saying, The hour has come. It has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man is a way of referring to himself. It says it's time. It's time. And in chapter 13, again, is now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's when we get this beautiful scene of him washing their feet and serving them, and then instructing, and then praying. And then, of course, now in chapter 17, verse 1. What this tells us is that In this horrific event, it is not that somehow God's plan had just gone out of whack and it was a tragic event. God's plan never gets out of control. God's plan is never skewed. There's no unintended consequences. Our plans often do, right? Even our very best plans, unintended consequences come up. In fact, I love to read little stories of kind of unintended consequences. Here's, here's one of my favorite. This is from a few years ago. Uh, in New Delhi, in India, they had a growing problem with cobras, you know, venomous snakes. And so they came up with this bounty system 
that as people turned in the skins of these cobras, that they would be paid a certain amount for them. Sounds like a good way to reduce the number of cobras in the city. They didn't intend, they didn't think about the ingenuity of people that began to think it's a pretty good way to make money. So after catching what cobras they could, they started farming cobras so that they could turn in more skins to get more money. And after a while, the government caught on, like, there's a lot more cobras being turned in than there should have been. So they canceled the program. So what do you do if you have a farm full of cobras that you can no longer be paid for? Just let them go, right? So they ended up with more cobras than they began with in this program. I mean, our, our plans do that sometimes, right? Our best plans have unintended consequences. They get out of control because of our limitations. There's so little we know, there's so little we understand, especially about the future. As we march through John, and we see this repeated statement, the hour had not yet come, the time had not yet come, they couldn't seize him because his time had not yet come, now the hour's come. It's a reminder that God is not like us. His plans do not go out of control, there are no unintended consequences, it stays on track, it stays unwavering as Jesus marches towards the cross. The hour has come. And then he makes the request. The first of what will be four requests, if you read this chapter on your own this week, which I encourage you to do, watch specifically for the request. There's really four of them. And then instruction, or not instruction, but filling it in around that. And the first of the requests is this. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Glory conveys the idea of honor, praise, brightness, splendor, majesty, reputation, esteem. And yet even this is not a self-focused request, but desiring to bring glory to the Father. He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And what's amazing is he's speaking here of the cross and all that it entails, the the bloody cross, the time in in the tomb, in the resurrection. It says this, this will glorify you. I'm praying, glorify me that I may glorify you through this, that I may show your worth, your splendor, your majesty. Uh, Again, we read a few moments ago one of the statements about his hour having come. In John 12, verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The humiliation of the cross was a moment for glory. It was glory of the Son because it brought glory to the Father. Even in this lowliness and suffering, we see her on display what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know this. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus was rich, but he became poor. And it doesn't say, it does not mean his bank account was full, he came to earth, and you know, the money didn't transfer with him. It's not that. It's rich in glory, in honor, in the comfort even of heaven, separate from the limitations of being housed in a human body and the weakness that goes along with that and living in a sin-soaked world. 
he was apart from that. He was rich, yet he became poor. And he did this, and we'll return to this theme in just a moment, for your sake. He stepped out of glory that he may glorify the Father. And he may do that through saving people. The cross displayed the glory of God unlike any event in history. It was an ultimate culmination of this. I read that a neutron star, the star that's believed has collapsed, it is so dense that a square of it, the size of a sugar cube, would weigh 100 million tons. That's how dense it is. And I think in the same way, the cross, God's glory is densely packed into this event. Because in the cross, we see the, the holiness of God that, that abhors sin and, and must punish sin. And yet we see the, the, the love and mercy of God that wants to save sinners. We see the sovereignty of God in bringing all of this to conclusion that he had promised and hinted at and foretold all through the Old Testament. And now it's, it's here we see the triune nature of God as the Father, Son, and Spirit are working together to bring this about. We see God's glory densely packed into this event. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, that your greatness might be shown brightly through this. And then he goes on to describe, I think, what in a sense is the means of this. How, how will the Father glorify the Son that the Son may glorify the Father? And what is remarkable is he says, you'll be glorified. Jesus glorified God by bringing people into relationship with him. Look at verses 2 to 4. So glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Then verse 2, even as you gave him, that is talking about himself, authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given them, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus has been given authority, and it's authority to give eternal life to those whom God had given him. Did you notice that language in there? It says that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That we're, we're described as like a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son with authority to give eternal life through this great transaction on the cross. That he could give eternal life. There's other passages that talk about this authority and this gift. John 3, verses 35 to 36. Jesus speaking here, he says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, and specifically his people, those who would trust in him, are like a gift. He says that he has given from the Father to the Son, so that the Son will give eternal life to them. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 27 speaks of this authority. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
People are described as a gift from the Father to the Son, the Son willing to reveal himself to these people that they may know the Father. And so then we get in chapter 17, here, verse 3. And he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He brings us into relationship with him. And it's a phrase that we can almost overuse or trivialize, the sense that we are in relationship with him. And yet that's what this describes. It describes eternal life, not in the sense of duration, but in quality. And that quality is found in knowing him. Not just knowing about him, and not just being rescued from the punishment of our sin, which would be sufficient if we're rescued, but kept at arm's length. And yet he says, no, I want to rescue them that they may know you. Not just knowing he exists, but really knowing him. Paul would say in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 10, that I have endured the loss, essentially it's kind of summarizing, of, of all things. Why? So that I may know you, that I may know Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let the, not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's knowing him. It's not just rescued from like the fires of hell, although there is a rescuing that takes place, but it's brought into knowing God. Jesus would like to do for his people. You might have people around you, and I bet this may be, maybe this will help because I know it can be kind of a fuzzy concept. You might have people around you that you know about, but you don't feel like you really know them. Maybe it's people you work with. Maybe you work with them for years, but it's just kind of casual. They come and go, you interact on work things, and yet you find out sometime about some major crisis that's been ongoing in their life, and you end up kind of entering into that with them and spending time with them, not just on the tasks of work, but encouraging them, listening to them, helping them. And at the end, you feel like you, you know them in a way that you didn't before. Why? You, you've been let in on the inner dynamics of their heart, on the reality of their life, on understanding what kind of makes them tick. And in the same way, we can be let in on the inner reality of who God is, what he values, what he prioritizes, what's on his heart, because he has, through his word, allowed us to do so. One theologian said it this way, that God has condescended to make himself known. So this is eternal life, that we may know him. Friends, do you, do you feel like you know God? What a privilege that we could. And it's through this that the glory of God is displayed. Because the more we press in and know him, the more his glory shines. There are some people, and in some ways it's all of us, that the closer you get to them, the worse they look. Right? Because from a distance, everybody can look pretty good, but we press in, we get close, we know them more, and you realize, oh, they've got problems too. Right? And that's all of us in some ways. And yet, that is not God. The more we press in, the more we know him, the more glory we see. The more of his goodness we see, the more of his perfection we see. So he says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
as people are brought into relationship with you. The more we know about God, the more we know God, the more of his glory we see. Even as we bump into things that confuse us. So I've been a Christian now. This fall will be 25 years. I, I came to Christ my junior year of high school as a friend shared the gospel with me. So it'll be 25 years. Don't do the math on how old I am. Just, just trust me. There. And, and for much of that time, when, when I bumped up against something in the word that I didn't understand about God, I was, I was like troubled by that because I kind of sent me through a little bit of a tailspin as I was trying to like figure out this thing about God that I didn't understand, that I saw there that confused me. And, and honestly, I've been reflecting lately about how that's not quite so much the case anymore. Not because I've got it all figured out, but when I bump up against something I don't quite get, it's like, oh, this is another opportunity to learn more about God. This is another opportunity to know some facet of his character that previously I had not known and had not understood. And so a difficulty becomes an opportunity to to, to not kind of be troubled, but to say, God, there's something about you that I get to learn now as I, as I press into this. There's some facet of your character that is now new and on display. This is eternal life, that we may know him. God is glorified as we know him. And then he wraps up in verse 5 by describing and praying for and anticipating this return to glory. Verse 5, Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's returning to this position of glory that we read about in 2 Corinthians 8 9 a moment ago, where he was rich, yet for your sake, your sake that you may know him, he became poor. And so he's saying, Father, bring me back to this glory that I had with you before the world was. In John 1, I'll have it up here. In John 1, verses 1 to 3, it describes this. It says, In the beginning, the very beginning, for nothing was made, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And it goes on to tell us that this word that was with God, that was God, that all things were created through him is Christ. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's saying, return me to this glory. Return me to this glory. His time on earth was a parenthesis, a mighty parenthesis, a significant parenthesis, but just a parenthesis in his existence that stretched back into all eternity in the past and will into the future. And he's saying, Father, glorify me. Return me to this position of glory that I willingly set aside that I may rescue people, bring them into relationship with you, that they may glorify you as well. A remarkable prayer. Next week we'll turn, and he'll turn, to praying for his disciples, praying for you. And I encourage you this week, read ahead. See, see what his heart is for you. See what he prays about for you. Ask questions of the text. Come anticipating kind of the study of it so we can press into this remarkable scene together. But how do we apply this? How do we apply this part of the prayer 
In one sense, there's nothing to apply. There's not a to-do list here, right? There's not a series of commands. We just soak it in. Soak in what Christ has done. And yet some particular ways we can do that. Would it be to reflect on the fact that the glory of God should be our highest ambition as well? Romans eleven thirty six says, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He says that ought to be our perspective. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That desire can capture our heart that the greatness, the goodness, the mercy of God is displayed in us, through us, marveled upon by us. And specifically, we glorify God in relationship with him through eternal life. And this eternal life that has already begun. If you're a follower of Christ, if you know Christ, if you've turned from your sin that made the cross necessary, you trust in him, you trust in that payment trusting fully in his work and not your own, you brought into relationship with him, then eternal life has begun now. Like it begun, begins the moment you die, it's now. And that eternal life is now of knowing him. Knowing him. Not just knowing about him. Not just checking off this box. Okay, I went to church. At least two out of four Sundays, right? Mission accomplished. But, but knowing him. Really knowing him. What a marvelous privilege. Let's pray.